0: Good Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It is uh, Tuesday today, and it is uh, still a little bit in the chilly side in Minnesota, and I'm not uh, I'm not complaining because uh, spring is still ahead. And I know there's a lot of good things that are going to be happening in the days ahead because uh, God is on the throne, and we are remaining steadfast. All right? So 1 Corinthians 15 says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. I never, ever get tired of reading that because that is the gospel, the wonderful good news that Christ is risen. And Easter, just a couple of days ago, resurrection day, I'm still full of delight, and I want to make sure I pass that on to you as well. Let me take a short break, when I come back, my friend Rob Bluey, uh the executive editor of The Daily Signal will be joining me. I'm gonna get an update on the uh, initiative they're taking at the Heritage Foundation. It's very exciting. We'll be right back. Bible teacher Chuck Swindoll on the coronavirus. Every day seems to bring another set of surprises and more reports of heartaches, pain, and suffering. Let's agree to trust and not be afraid. Our God is still in full control. He loves us with an infinite amount of love and therefore will never release His grip on our lives. An encouraging word from Chuck Swindoll, your station, and your friends at Insight for Living. If you're listening to Faith Radio right now on an AM signal, we just want to let you know that you do have the option to listen to our static-free, crystal-clear FM signal. All of our markets now have Faith Radio on the FM radio band. To see where to turn the dial in your city, visit MyFaithRadio.com and look under the About tab. Then click on How to Listen, and you'll see the FM stations listed there. Enjoy Faith Radio in FM. All right, let's get this day started with Rob Bluey, executive editor of The Daily Signal. I talk to Rob every week, and I'm so grateful for that. And I've never met Rob in person, but he is my brother in Christ. Rob, welcome.
1: Hey, thanks for having me back, Bill. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, so things are busy at the Heritage Foundation. I'm dying to get an update on the coronaviruscommission.com. Yes.
1: We, uh, we are. Yeah, that's the website, coronaviruscommission.com. And I, I will say up front that we are moving into the phase where we are starting to hear from the American people with their ideas and recommendations. They can send them to us at, uh, right there at the website, and we have heard from hundreds of people already. Uh, it is crucial that if we're going to get our country reopened again, uh, that we take into account uh, the ideas not only of the experts, uh, but of those people who are out there uh, living and breathing and doing the hard work work uh, that uh, that certainly goes into to this period of time that we're experiencing. So uh the coronavirus commission started last week. We uh, we talked about it on this show uh, just uh, moments after it launched and we had our first meeting last Thursday. The commissioners, which uh, are 17 people who come from diverse backgrounds, put out five different phases uh, that they see the country needing to go through, and uh, it starts with the first step, which is really looking regionally and community by community and deciding uh, you know, how we get to a point where we can start to get life back to normal again. Of course, recognizing that uh, the, the normal from before coronavirus is going to probably look different than a normal after uh, coronavirus.
0: Right. And there's so many people in conversation, uh, Rob, saying, well, what do you think? What do you think? How are we going to get back? When are we going to get back? What is it going to look like? And I am so grateful that this commission um, that you have put together, that the Heritage Foundation has put together, um, has put out five initiatives. And I would love for you to explain what these are to the listeners.
1: Well, certainly, thank you. Uh, so the, uh, the the first one really is uh, focused on how do we get back to work, and uh, and what is the the process for for being able to do so. Uh, of course, we have to to be. Careful. We don't want to send anybody back into, uh, you know, a a workplace or out into, uh, out into society with, with them not feeling safe or having that trust. So really it's about, uh, you know, establishing that trust and, and safety that they'll have. Uh, what does that mean? It means that we need to have a stable health care system. We can't have a healthcare system overrun by too many patients that are requiring care. We need to have enhanced testing. We need to ha- test millions of people uh, to the point where uh, we're getting there, but uh, we're, we're not quite there yet. We need to have accurate reporting. We need to have a process in place for doing contact tracing. And we probably still need to follow many of the CDC guidelines. I don't think that we'll uh, probably be going to a baseball game and sitting in the stands uh, like we did last year uh, quite yet. Uh, we're we're not at that point yet. And, and Bill, I think the other thing that's uh, really important here is different regions of the country may be able to go back sooner than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, different regions that have experienced a peak, uh, you know, maybe in a, in a better shape than those who uh, the peak is still yet to, to come. Uh, cities, I think, are going to present bigger challenges given public transit and, uh, and how people, you know, commute to work than rural communities, where, uh, where, you know, you might have a little bit more isolation naturally from, from the environment that you're in. So, uh, so that's the, the, the first phase, and we can go through all of them, but, uh, but I, I think that's the most important one, because it kind of lays out the short-term questions that everybody's a- asking, and, of course, uh, you know, everybody wants a date. I think a date is hard. The president has said the end of April uh, would be the end of social distancing, or at least this phase of it. Uh, he may extend that, but, uh, you know, that's why I think it's so, so difficult. We're... Every day we're learning something new and, uh, and really taking it a day at a time.
0: Mm-hmm. Rob, I had this thought driving into work today. When you go to church, when church resumes, let's say there's three or 400 people in your church sanctuary, which you would be delighted to go be a part of again. You know, if I'm, I'm probably speaking for a lot of people that are dying to get back to church. So if I'm going to be around 400 people, let's say, back at church, wouldn't that be equivalent to what I might come in contact with at a baseball game? which might have 25,000 people at, but I'm only going to be in contact with about 400.
1: That's right. And I, I think that the steps that we started to take in early March when we, uh, you know, during during the peace at church, you stop shaking hands perhaps, right. and, you you know, you either do it, the elbow bump or you just acknowledge somebody with a friendly hello. Uh, you know, I think, you know, maybe some people are going to be more comfortable wearing a, a mask out in public, Uh I've already started doing so, you know, at the grocery store, and I see even the cashiers donning them now. I mm-hmm. think are probably smartly so. I mean, I've seen pictures in South Korea of where they're sitting at a restaurant, and there's now a glass shield uh, separating, uh, you know, <laughs> the the individuals. So I guess oh, wow. they're, you know, uh, protecting themselves. So I, I don't know what exactly a church service of three to four hundred people would look like or how, how to make that possible, uh, but I think that there probably will be uh, precautionary measures. Like, for instance, those who are at a high risk uh, may decide that they want to wait a little bit longer uh, to go back to such a church service than those who are, are at a lower risk. There are those who probably already have immunity from the coronavirus, and therefore uh, they would be in a better position to be able to do so. What we need, though, when I talk about the enhanced testing, is we need to be able to determine and help people understand. And uh, there's going to be, you know, some new developments in our society where uh, maybe the church even takes everybody's temperature before coming into work, similar to what they're doing in some government offices right now. Uh, you know, that could be one step that they they decide to to employ. But I think you're absolutely right. I think we all felt it on Easter Sunday, where we missed out being there in person
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, for church service. And we did our best uh, to do it virtually, but it just wasn't quite the same.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. It was it was hard not being around loved ones, for sure, uh, church family and, and, and then family afterwards. So, all right, let's talk about uh, just trying to slow this spread. And the second initiative is to try to slow this down while expanding testing, reporting, and contact tracing. Explain that. That's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So this this is really about uh, the the focus on we need to ramp up productions of the diagnostic testing uh, to determine immunity. So uh, we want to make regional public health departments uh, in, put them in a position where they can expand this testing and and really take the lead on reporting. Now, uh, why is it the regional health departments? Because this is one area where the federal government, I don't think, uh, they they can do their best to have a coordinated response, but it's people on the ground who are gonna be closest to the problem and best at providing solutions. And so they're the ones that are going to be able to inform their their neighbors and their communities about what is safe and and we're able to do. Uh, Until that happens, I think we need to maintain the CDC guidelines, we need to continue to do the social distancing. Uh, We need to be smart about, you know, certain employers uh, can have people work effectively from home. For instance, the Heritage Foundation and the Daily Signal, we are set up and fortunate to be able to do uh, almost all of our work remotely. Uh, that's just the nature of the, the business that we're in. Others, like a, a manufacturing facility or, or a factory, will need people there. Construction is another example of that, which business has continued, right? Uh, grocery stores and some service industries, you know, you need to physically be present. So, you know, those are decisions that I think will have to be made, but it should be done in concert with, uh, with taking the guidance of those regional health uh, health officials.
0: Yeah, when I think about this one, Rob, one of the things that pops into my head is personal responsibility. And this is going to require all of us to take personal responsibility, especially if, uh, you know, we are not feeling well or, you know, I know people during the flu season that are probably out working when they should be home in bed.
1: I think that if anything, hopefully this uh, this virus has has shown us that uh, both employers and employees. I think there are those who feel guilty about taking a day off even when they're sick, and they'll they'll tough it out and go to the office. And I think that hopefully this has given everybody a new appreciation for how quickly a virus can spread. Whether you know, let's set set coronavirus aside. It could be the flu. It could be the common cold. Mm -hmm. It could be anything. And I hope people have a greater understanding now that uh, that they're they're going to be doing their own uh coworkers and their family uh, a better job if they simply get some rest and get better uh, so personal responsibility does factor into this uh, it's a big aspect of it, and I think that's uh one of the areas we have seen some parts of the country make progress because people are Following these directives, and they are um, they're they're abiding by it. Now, there's a, a huge economic cost to that, and I understand that uh, there, there are other health consequences to that as well. You might not be uh, getting sick from coronavirus, but you might be struggling with depression or mental health issues. So, you know, there there's always going to be those trade offs, and I think that's why finding the right balance is important.
0: Yeah, it is awfully nice that um, the Daily Signal can do most of their work from home. I'm wondering how much of your workday are you still in jammies?
1: <laughs> not not much because okay, uh, uh even even no pajama pants uh uh, you know, I had to do my uh, my first TV hit today on One America News from my living room, and I, I did uh, tell the wife and uh, kids to uh, play on the trampoline out back just to nice. so keep the noise down. But but yes, uh, you know, I put on a tie and uh, and dressed up nice. So so Bill, uh, I I feel like I spent a lot of my day, particularly with the work of the commission, uh, talking to people like you, making sure we're getting the word out. And uh yes, a lot of that can be done just from, you know, the the, the shirt and uh and and off. But uh, it's it's uh it's definitely a new adjustment and a different environment we're living in. I think we're all growing much more comfortable with technology, that's for sure.
0: Okay, if you can multitask, you can listen to our break and you can go to coronaviruscommission.com to learn more about this. Rob Louie is my guest. We're going to hear more about it in 90 seconds. commission announced the creation of the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission this uh, last week, and that provides the American people and policymakers with recommendations on the steps needed to move prudently toward recovery. And this commission is uh, chock full of really uh, smart thinkers and uh, people from all uh, walks of life, and you can go to coronaviruscommission.com to learn more about it, but Rob Louie is my guest executive editor of The Daily Signal, you can always go to dailysignal.com, and we're learning uh, the five-phase uh, plan uh, by the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission and what they're recommending. So, um, we learned uh, one and uh, points one and two, one is return to a more normal level of business activity at the regional level on scientific data. Number two is slow the spread of the coronavirus while expanding testing, reporting, and contact tracing. And number three is continue to build the science. Rob, say more about that.
1: I will. let me just make a point on those first two phases. Next week at the commission's uh, April 20th meeting, we expect to be issuing our first set of recommendations. Uh, So I I look forward to hopefully sharing those with you next Tuesday. Those will be be specific uh, recommendations. Uh, These are kind of the broad framework we're talking about today. You mentioned phase three is continue to build the science. Uh, You know, that is really focused on increasing the availability and rapidity of Uh, new diagnostic tests while also supporting the acceleration and introduction of therapeutics and vaccines. You've heard the president uh, talk almost daily about uh, the therapeutics and the different uh, medicines that those who are suffering from the coronavirus and COVID-19 can have. I know there's some debate within the administration and the the medical community about that. And frankly, we still are, uh, we're hearing mixed signals on a vaccine. I know that today uh, Israel was talking about being weeks away from discovering a vaccine. And then I also hear it's going to be sometime in 2021 uh, by the time we have a vaccine in place. So really, uh, there's any number of factors that I think uh, vaccines typically take a while to produce, and, uh, and certainly at the scale that we would need it in the United States and around the world. Uh, but uh, I think that they're working around the clock on that. So, so continuing to build the science is, is really critically important.
0: I agree. All right, let's move on to number four, um, establish U.S. leadership in leading the free world in economic recovery.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there's a role here for the United States to, to set the right example. And I think particularly if we partner with some of our allies in Western Europe and the Indo-Pacific, uh, we can really send a message of economic freedom and, and prosperity uh, to those people. And so this is we have to remember uh, the coronavirus has, has swept the globe. I think a lot of the focus is rightly on the United States because we've had the greatest number of deaths. Um, We are doing the most testing and this is primarily where everybody is is looking to for for the international leadership So uh, what better way to get our economy up and running again? And uh, and hopefully returning to some semblance of normal than by you know taking those steps on on an international level Uh, There's obviously going to be a component here, which uh, has air travel Uh, You know the president was was quick to make a decision to shut down travel between the United States and China Uh, Then he later decided to do that with Europe. So at some point, we'll have to make those decisions on when to allow uh, travel again. Uh, You know, you see the pictures of airports and and the the lack of crowds, the ticket counters, and the the stories of only one or two people being on a flight. You know, there's going to be a point in time where, uh, you know, people will will have that demand and desire to travel again. And so we need to do so in a responsible way, uh, because obviously that's how the coronavirus came to the United States in the first place. Um, so we need to be careful that we don't spread it to other places inadvertently.
0: It is interesting, Rob, because the whole world is under this uh, pandemic right now, and there is a need for economic recovery all over the world, isn't there?
1: Oh, yes. No, it, it's certainly true. And the United States is fortunate to have You know, a strong underlying economy. I I realize that, uh, you know, we are in the point of uh, a recession and there are a lot of people who have experienced unemployment, but it's hard to believe that even, uh, you know, just a month ago, things were doing incredibly well with our economy. Unemployment was at a near record low and so I think one of the goals that we should have uh, is is to set that international example and one of the ways to do that is to keep employees tethered to their employers uh, for as long as possible. I I think that the fact that they could go back to work and not necessarily have to suffer through a furlough or a layoff uh, should be our goal and I know that the Congress has already passed you know a two trillion dollar stimulus and they're talking about doing more. Uh, but, you know, this is one of the things that is going to be critical to getting America back to work again. If there's a prolonged delay and people don't necessar- aren't necessarily able to go back to the jobs they had before the coronavirus pandemic, uh, you know, that obviously could contribute to the economic consequences of this country and their own personal family and their own situation.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Another thing, the last item on this schedule is to reduce the future risks of pandemics. Boy, you've got my attention on this one.
1: Yes, so I think this is critically important. We've been talking a lot about the short-term goals here up until now. Uh Uh, Obviously, people are, are looking for a date, and they want action, and they want things to go back to normal. But we need to make sure that we're doing a good job of developing a plan for the future. So that includes investing in national and state stockpiles. You've heard a lot about the, the shortage of tests, or the shortage of uh, personal protective equipment, masks, and gloves for healthcare workers. We need to be make sure that we're in a, in a better uh, situation. We need to look at our supply chain. So, how are we getting this uh, to the United States? Are we too dependent on certain countries uh, to produce these these, these goods uh, for for people in the United States? Um, we need to develop strategies to adjust our capacity to meet demands during a crisis. Uh, you know one of the reasons that we're in this uh the situation with the social distancing and then stay at home orders is we didn't want the hospital system to be overwhelmed and we saw you know new york uh grapple with this use the uh the javit Center and other places to to put people uh the u s s comfort going to New York to try to alleviate some of the demands so yes there's all sorts of things that we can do in that that uh that situation, and then let, you know, th- we, we when we talk about coronavirus, we talk about it. Uh, you know, as th- there's many coronaviruses, of course, and uh, and starting to develop vaccines for other types of coronavirus, so we can be prepared in the event that something does spread like this in the future, and then uh, really developing a biosurveillance network so we can do a better job of detecting and containing uh, emerging infectious diseases uh, by coordinating with other countries. Uh, I fault China here for not doing uh, a better job earlier uh, to alert the rest of the global community about what was going on in its own country. And we need to make sure that we have that cooperation and partnership so that we can take steps earlier uh, to hopefully prevent another pandemic from, from getting out of control as this one has.
0: Mm-hmm. Rob, will there be any blowback uh, for China as a result of their, um, their lack of transparency?
1: I, I certainly think there should be. Uh, now, whether or not uh, that's done on the international level or whether it's the United States solely, uh, I expect that this president will continue to, to have a hard line on China. I know one way that we've attempted to do that is uh, through the World Health Organization and make clear that we are you know, not pleased with the World Health Organization and, and some of its actions with regard to, to protecting China. Uh, so that is one way to do it. Uh, but I think that there are probably other, other different opportunities. Uh, one thing I think everybody is focused on now, though, is, is making sure that we, we treat the, the people who are sick with, uh, with the, the virus, and, uh, and some of those economic consequences can come later.
0: It seems a little nuts to me that we do not produce our own uh, medicine here in this country.
1: That's a big topic, Bill. I mean, I, I, the Heritage Foundation just produced a, a research report on this today. And it's one of those issues where uh, you know it, it's obviously an area that we need to take a closer look at. I think that this whole situation has has forced not only uh, members of Congress uh, to introduce some legislation to do that, but also this president, who is very much uh, a critic of China. I think he himself recognizes that it's an area that he ha- he will need to focus on. Look, there's a lot of uh, a lot of questions that are going to be happening here, and uh, and this is why the commission exists. This is why we also want your listeners to share their ideas with us. So I'll. Get- the website one more time. It's coronaviruscommission.com. Uh, no idea uh, will be turned away. We're going to read them all, review them all. As I said earlier, we've already had hundreds of people submit uh, their ideas to us. So I encourage them to keep them coming. And uh, at next Monday's uh, meeting, we're going to be look forward to reviewing them.
0: I think that's fantastic, Rob, that you're soliciting ideas from listeners. I think that's wonderful. Um, you know, you and I have never had bat soup. Do you think this came from a wet market or do you think this was a bioweapon that kind of went bad?
1: on this at the Daily Signal. Uh, my colleague Fred Lucas did a, a really deep dive on this and talked to experts on both sides. Cool. There seems to be some some debate still but uh, but but my colleagues who have an expertise in this area tell me that most likely did not come from uh, that, that bioweapons facility. Uh, but again, uh, unanswered questions we'll find out soon.
0: Yeah, we'll head over to dailysignal.com and look for Fred Lucas's article a story on that I'm sure you can find it easily. Rob Louie, thank you so much for doing the show once again. have a great week. Thanks. Thank you, Bill. Yep. Rob Bluey is the executive editor of The Daily Signal. Head over to dailysignal.com. Let's take a little break, and we'll be right back. back to the show. It's my good fortune, because it's my, my good fortune seldom happens twice in one day. Well, there was that one day that I was upgraded to first class, and I did find a $20 bill and a jacket I hadn't worn in six months. That was the same day. But today is one of those days I get to talk to Tim Challies for the first time. And I'm also getting to do it on the day that his new book comes out called Epic, an Around the World Journey Through Christian History. And I've always wanted to talk to Tim, and it's been, seems like forever since I've had any luck. And now I realize for the last three years he's been traveling around the world. So pretty legitimate excuse not to do my show, but he's doing it today. Tim, welcome.
2: Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, and sorry to uh, delay so long in being on your show.
0: That's okay. You know, I have to say, this is a pretty wild story, how this whole thing started. Kind of started over a coffee with somebody saying, I want to come talk to you about money. That usually is never a good thing, is it? (laughs)
2: <laughs> no, it's usually not a good thing, it's the kind of thing that makes me sweat. But this time, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it worked out really well. So somebody got in touch and just said that he had been, uh, he and some other um, businessmen that he's uh, associated with have been keeping an eye on some of my stuff, and were just wondering if there was a project I'd be interested in doing for which money had proven an object. Wow, which is yeah, a pretty good question to ask. And as it happens, I did have a project I was interested in doing, and they were uh, then glad to help me with it. What do we call that,
0: Tim? Basically one of those dream come true things?
2: Yeah, or philanthropy, if you will. Yeah, I'll take uh, either. There's a long history of Christians doing this kind of thing, patronage, freeing yeah. up others to uh, to do that. So you look at the book of Luke or the book of Acts, and obviously it's far more important work, work than I did, but there's... Uh, Luke giving a shout out to uh, his patron right there. So there's a good history of this.
0: Yeah. And of course I'm celebrating uh, Christians and their generosity because they have, you're right. They've been doing this for a long time and, and Christians generously support the radio station here. So no, I I'm just half joking because usually when somebody wants to get together and talk about money, it's usually, can you, you know, can you lend me a hundred bucks? I want to, yep. yeah. <laughs> but this is a whole different deal. Now history, it doesn't necessarily have to be boring for sure. And you've done a spectacular job of of just doing it uh, justice and making it very interesting, even to the point where your your kids go, Dad, nice work, good job.
2: <laughs> yeah, we we really did try to make it interesting, and um, I, I've lo- loved history always have, and so for me it was a dream to be able to go and see history, go and experience it. But that wouldn't have been much fun if I wasn't able to share it with others. And I know there's many people who don't have a great interest in history. And to some degree, that's often because history is told in rather dry or boring ways. And so I just wanted to make it a little more accessible. And so through this book and the the uh, travel documentary that comes with it, I'm hoping to allow people to see history, to experience it in a new way as a mix of stories from my travels around the world and, of course, then also the stories from history itself.
0: Well, for starters, you're a brilliant writer and thinker, so uh, I can endorse uh, you as a as a writer, not that you need my endorsement, but I'm just speaking on behalf of my listeners. Um, but I want to talk about the the select, selected objects that surfaced in your book. Now, they're all kind of one-of-a-kinds, aren't they?
2: Yeah, so the idea was to find historical objects, which together would tell the story of the Christian faith, and then to try to find objects that told a story beyond themselves. So objects that would be, in a sense, representative. So not just interesting things, but things that would really just Open up history in their own way. And so I looked far and wide all over the world and uh, managed to find some really neat ones.
0: All right, let's get into some of the really neat ones because this is when it gets fun.
2: Well, I started with Augustus of Prima Porta, which is, if you've ever been to the Vatican Museums in Rome, you may have seen it there. And that's a statue of Caesar Augustus, who was Caesar. He was emperor, Roman emperor, in the time Jesus was born. He's given a shout out in the Bible, even. And so looking at this statue, it's it's a propaganda statue. So it's meant to teach truths or half-truths or wannabe truths about this man. And as you look at the statue, as you study it, you'll start to see who this man was, what he accomplished, and how, in his own way, he laid the groundwork for the, the rise of the Christian faith in the the uh, ancient world. Um, we can fast forward in history to find things like uh, the cell door, that uh, Jan Hus Hus was held behind when he was martyred as uh, one of the the proto or pre-reformers. We can go to Luther's Day and find an indulgence box. If you know anything about the Reformation, you know that uh, what drove Luther mad was the fact that there were indulgences being bought and sold, this way of remitting sin through financial transactions. And so in a museum in Germany found an indulgence box of the kind that so infuriated Luther. And on, 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 on and on it goes through history all the way up to pretty much modern times with uh, Billy Graham's traveling pulpit, the one he took from uh, place to place, the head of IBM actually designed it for him, made it electronic for him, and so on. So just lots of really neat things. You stitch them all together. Here is the story of the Christian faith and these objects that still exist that you can see, sometimes touch, sometimes hold, and so on.
0: Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the indulgence box. Is that basically just where money was being held
2: yeah exactly so it's a steel box or a mm-hmm. um, a metal b- iron box and you can see that it's got bands and locks on it so it's it's made to be strong and uh, tetzel used to say that johann T- tetzel was the monk who was selling these indulgences and he would go from town to town through germany asking if you give money i will give you an indulgence which says you no longer have to bear the consequences of your sins in purgatory so instead of having to be purged of remaining sin in purgatory. You buy this indulgence, you'll pass through purgatory, go straight to heaven. Or we'll go so far as to say, if you buy one of these, you can do it on behalf of your loved ones, and now they Mm -hmm. can escape the purging fires of purgatory. And uh, he had that little, little rhyme he would do, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so here's one of those boxes, not necessarily one Tetzel ever touched or used, but uh, there's a, a coin slot in the top and you would put your money in and you would get your indulgence.
0: Uh, Tim, another uh, in the book that I've been to is is uh, the Book of Kells. I've been to that in um, at Trinity College in Dublin. Uh, tell yeah. me about how long did you stay in Dublin and it was not long enough, was it?
2: <laughs> I love Ireland. Uh, I just, you and me both. Yeah. Oh, I just love that whole area. Um, And so we were just not that long in Ireland, a few days there, scouring Ireland, the Republic, and then also Northern Ireland. But the Book of Cowles is an ancient, illuminated um, gospel. It's the the first four books of the New Testament, beautifully illuminated, which means illustrated by monks. And um, it's just a stunning object, but also important historically in that it shows how the Bible was transmitted from its first manuscripts up until the time we know today, which was people carefully transcribing it long before it could be electronic and blasted out through the world instantly as we see it today. It had to be painstakingly copied character by character. And you see that, and you see the love and attention these monks put into it uh, to preserve Scripture and to, uh, to make it beautiful.
0: How long did you spend in Dublin?
2: We spent just a couple days there. Okay, that's too bad. And then traveled through the rest of the aisle. Yeah. So how
0: long would you go out for before you would need to go home and see the family and then go back out again?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So typically we tried to do uh, trips of no more than 10 days, often about a week. Okay. And so living in Toronto, it's a major international airport here. So I could get to almost anywhere in the world. I could leave at night, wake up the next morning on the plane and be just about wherever I needed to be. So travel was pretty efficient, and then spend a week or 10 days in India or um, Southern Africa, just going through the sites, doing my research, and then uh, heading back home. And having done a lot of research in advance, I kind of knew what I was looking for, sure. and often would, would find it. Sometimes I'd have to go looking for other things instead.
0: So when you got to see the Gutenberg Bible, uh, tell me about that experience.
2: I actually had a few Gutenberg Bible experiences. So for the rarest book in the world, at least one among collectors that they want more than any other, to have a Gutenberg Bible in your collection is a real mark of distinction. I found a number of them, but I would recommend if you can get to Germany, go to the city of Mainz there where Gutenberg did much of his work. And uh, that, that was the center of German printing around the time of the Reformation, just before And uh, there's a a wonderful museum there where they have a full-size replica of the press to show you how Gutenberg actually printed his Bible. And then uh, you go upstairs and there's a special room there, which is temperature controlled and humidity controlled and heavily guarded and everything else. And There's actually a couple of Gutenberg Bibles in there that you can look at and see this, this thing that changed the world. It changed the world because it was the Word of God, but the Word of God had always existed prior to that. But now, through the printing press, it could be sent out far and wide. It could be mass printed, mass distributed, and I tell you, once you get the Bible in people's hands, it starts to change them, and it starts to change society around them. And that's exactly what happened.
0: Yeah, no kidding. So, did you also see the oldest Baptist church in the, the world?
2: <laughs> uh, the oldest one in the UK, anyways. The UK, yeah. So yeah. Was, Where was that? Yeah. So, I was down in Devonshire, England, and so it's way out in the middle of nowhere, as you might expect. The Baptists were not well-loved in that era. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, just shortly after the Reformation, they were—they um, had to worship kind of on the sly, and so they had this building that was set up. Right now, it's a little bit open around it, but back in the day, it was densely wooded, and— um, you couldn't see that there was a baptistry now, but I started, uh, you know, kind of rearranging some of the floorboards and stuff, and sure enough, found that there was a baptistry underneath the, oh, wow. the floorboards there. It kind of rang hollow under my feet, you know, walking around mm-hmm. and realized, yeah, there's something under here. And uh, so, yeah, it was it was beautiful little building in a beautiful spot, Devonshire, one of the most beautiful places in the world, I think. And uh, yeah, it was really neat to find it and to explore that church.
0: Let's talk about John Bunyan's jug.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite things was finding quirky little objects, things that uh, are just kind of weird. They, they need to have a story told. Yeah. And so John Bunyan, of course, is the author of The Pilgrim's Progress and spent much of his life imprisoned for his convictions. He was a nonconformist and himself had Baptist leanings, Baptist convictions, and he was imprisoned for his lack of conformity, for preaching uh, as an unlicensed preacher and in prison for years. And while he was in prison, his daughter would bring him food. And that day, you didn't get fed much in prison, so your family was responsible to take care of you. And so he had a daughter, Mary, who was blind and um, was the apple of her father's eye. And you can imagine being in prison, knowing your family was on their own, and especially with a, a disabled daughter like that. But she would bring him his food day by day, and she would bring him soup in this little jug. And that that jug has survived and is in a John Bunyan museum there now. Uh, in his hometown. So it's a neat little object, and it tells a story, right? On the one hand, it's just this little plain, common little jug, but when you know the story of it, it starts to just really open things up. It starts to sing in its own way.
0: It's really cool, Tim. You think of the food being brought in in that little jug and how welcomed that was for John Bunyan as he's in prison. It's just crazy. Yeah.
2: Yeah, as he's in prison and as he's writing the book. I mean, as a man nobody thought anything of, nobody loved, nobody cared for. Yeah. Yet he's writing a book that has become the most printed book outside of the Bible, the most translated yeah. book outside of the Bible.
0: That's so interesting. Um, I just love this this book that you've put together. <laughs> Tim Challies is my guest. He's written a book called Epic, an around-the-world journey through Christian history. We're gonna take a little break when we come back. Lots more with Tim. <laughs> Show so glad to have Tim, Tim Challies as my guest today. He's written a book called Epic, an around the world journey through Christian history, and he's found uh, thirty three pretty spectacular artifacts that have great stories along with them. And I think uh, once you pick this book up, I don't think you'll put it down. I think you'll get uh, another cup of tea and keep reading. Tim, talk about George Whitfield's rock.
2: Mm-hmm. So George Whitfield, of course, the great evangelist of um, the the Awakening era. And he would travel through the UK, travel through the Americas, and he would preach. And often where he went, he would just have to preach first extemporaneously, uh, but also just outdoors publicly. The churches were usually closed to him because he, too, was a nonconformist, and, um, or at least they didn't believe in that kind of preaching. They were not welcoming of him. And so he would go outdoors and uh, in a small town, uh, outside a small town in Massachusetts, he stood upon this great rock to preach a sermon once with several hundred people gathered around him. And uh, the people in that area marked the rock and uh, called it Whitfield Rock. And sure enough, it's there to this day. Somebody since put a plaque on it to mark it. And uh, it used to be public. Now uh, we had to to get permission from somebody to, to hop a fence and walk through a cow pasture to find it. But uh, you can at least see it from the road now, and yeah. depending how you feel about hopping fences and cow pastures. You I'm a walk big up fan of that. Yourself.
0: Yeah, I'm a big yeah. fan of that. Were you able to jump up on the rock yourself and get a selfie?
2: Yep, absolutely. Oh, that's outstanding. Yeah, managed to get up there.
0: Yeah. How cool was that?
2: Yeah, it was really neat and just neat to just kind of close your eyes, just think back a little bit to the day that— he preached the gospel there, and based on what we know of his ministry, probably some people got saved while he preached there. And uh, just to imagine a crowd kind of gathered around the simple rock in a simple field, and yet that's what so much of his ministry was. He, he did spend time in the great palaces or some of the great churches, etc., preaching to the high and mighty, but far more commonly he was out in cow pastures, just preaching to whoever would listen.
0: Yeah, Tim, your book not only has got great stories, but it's got some wonderful pictures. I'm looking at this picture of Jonathan Edwards' Eclectic, (laughs) six-sided, lazy Susan desk. I don't even know what to make of this. looks like a lamp, but it's clearly not.
2: It's not. So he was a bit of a quirky guy, of course. Um, I'd say he was probably something of an eccentric. But uh, long before you had tabs in your browser, as we had today, you could keep multiple things open at once and flip between them. That's essentially what he wanted to do with his Ah. desk. So he made a desk that had... Um, These different surfaces, six different surfaces you could put a book on, um, sort of propped up like a pulpit or a lectern, and Mm -hmm. he could rotate it. So when he wanted to change Uh, books, he would just kind of rotate it to the next book, and he could keep six open on the go then as he did his research and wrote some of his great works.
0: Okay, that explains a lot. That really makes sense. It's very cool. If you think about it that way, you know, the way he's got everything laid out, you know, nowadays we just either lay stuff out on our computer or we lay stuff out on a big desk, but this is a really interesting.
2: It is, yeah.
0: All right. Did you get to play Charles Wesley's organ?
2: I did not. I there was a sign that. on it expressing that uh, I was not welcome to do that. Um, <laughs> also, I, I don't that? know how to play the organ, so it probably wouldn't have gone very well. Uh, it is played at times. It is still oh, wow. functional. Um, but no, I I probably could have, but I, I tend to obey signs. There's nobody around. It's just sitting there in this little side chapel. Yeah. Um. But yeah, what a neat thing to see this organ and to know that Charles Wesley, the most prolific hymn writer um, that years ago, he sat at this thing to compose the melodies for some of his hymns. So uh, again, a little piece of history. Who knows if one of the great hymns we sing today, and there's probably eight or ten Wesley hymns most of us still know and sing today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Who knows if maybe he composed one of them just sitting there and kind of just playing, seeing what came to mind, what, what inspired him.
0: Usually that's how people write songs. The, the occasional incredible song is written in the course of two minutes, and you you think, wow, that's kind of the lightning in a bottle principle. Mm. And I bet I yeah. bet he did write a spectacular song just sitting there one day.
2: Probably he did. Yeah, he certainly wrote some. Though it is fun to think about Wesley and think he's regarded as the great Christian hymn writer of all time. He and Fanny Crosby would probably share that that honor, both having written. Somewhere between like nine and ten thousand hymns or something, mm. and yet how many of those hymns do we sing today, like maybe eight or ten Wesley hymns, which is more than any other hymn writer, pretty much, um, but that does mean somewhere out there are probably nine thousand nine hundred and ninety Wesley hymns that are pretty bad or, or just really average, so <laughs> uh, you know there 's something comforting in that isn 't there <laughs> that yeah. you can be known as great later on. And yet the great majority of what you did has been totally forgotten and probably for very good reason.
0: And where is the Wesley organ?
2: That's in uh in London, in um a Wesley museum there, or at least in a okay. um a church connected to it.
0: Okay. And then you, you headed over to the Wilberforce House Museum in Hull, England. How far yeah. was that from London?
2: That was oh, I think it was a few hours on the train okay. to get up there, probably three hours or yeah. something. So uh, Wilberforce being the, uh, the the great abolitionist who spent his whole life engaged in that cause of um, liberating uh, England from slavery, and so trying to have the laws changed, and year after year he battled, and year after year he was shut down, and um, eventually he finally prevailed. So um, the, the object there is this neat little model ship, a very simple model ship, um, but in that day, slavery, and especially the, the slave trade across the Atlantic, was very abstract to people. And so he tried to make it more real by taking this model ship around and showing the actual conditions of the slaves as they were hauled across the Atlantic, how many would be so densely packed. And in the day before video cameras and the day before photography, the only way to do that, in his mind, was to get this model that included these this layout of how many people would be packed in there. And it became this object lesson in the horrors of slavery and was a key part to his uh, eventual successful battle. Tim,
0: did they uh, load that up with people and stage a photograph just to give a, viewers a look of what it might have been?
2: People have done that. In okay. this case, they they just uh, stenciled little uh, okay. people on it. Yeah. You can actually find photos out there of people who have gotten, who have done the exact layout of that ship with people just lying there. Uh, to show how densely packed the slaves were just in absolutely inhumane conditions.
0: Wow. Well, let's um, talk about the Slave Bible.
2: Yeah, so that's uh, at the Museum of the Bible, which I'm sure most have heard of. And it's a, a very interesting object because it's a Bible, kind of, it's a partial Bible. And what people did was they went through the Bible and they removed any parts that might think make slaves think that somehow slavery was unjust or unfitting for Christians, uh, or in any way opposed to God's will. And so they went through and just sort of tore out any parts that. Uh, and, and let's talk about the uh, the liberation of or the Exodus from Egypt, the liberation of the Israelites. Um, that was gone missing from this Bible and um, many parts. In fact, by the end, the Bible is reduced to, oh, maybe a third of its total length or something uh, when you get rid of all those parts that in some way would be uh, offensive to slave owners. Now, there's two ways of thinking about the Bible, and I, I wasn't able to completely solve it. Was it somebody who, is, who had very evil intent and was purposely creating a Bible that would um, be condoned by slave owners, or was it somebody with good intent taking out all the parts so he could still give slaves something of the Bible, enough of the story of salvation, enough of the gospel to uh, perhaps lead them to Christ. So it's a bit of a conundrum, and I don't know that history has been able to solve it.
0: Why the power of God's Word, you think of that and then the slaves were embracing the, the white man's God.
2: Yeah, exactly so. Yeah. So it's a very, uh, very interesting object. You just look at it and think about what it represents. It, mm-hmm. It's fascinating.
0: Yeah. So you're a, a born and raised Canadian, Tim?
2: That is true, yeah. Yeah.
0: So any, uh, did you find out there were any historic objects from your part of the world?
2: Yeah, there were some, um, none that quite made it into the book, but... Um, one of the We kind of ran into issues with the length of the book, but one of the things I had done was that if I'm going all over the world, I have to look in my own neighborhood and see what's right here. And um, I, I did find some really neat things um, related to the history of the uh, native Canadians when the Europeans came over and how uh, there was one uh, chief, a, a tribal chief here, who became a, a Christian and became a pastor and founded a town. And that town was really known as... Uh, the most moral town in the whole area and um, was really thriving under his leadership, thriving um, as just a kind of gospel community. But unfortunately, uh, the settlers, the European settlers started to bump up against it and so transported everybody away and the town fell apart. And uh, today is a golf course. So uh, there were some Neat ones. Also, Josiah Henson, who was the model for Uncle Tom, one of the Mm. historical inspirations for Uncle Tom. He escaped from America to Canada and settled not far from here. So, there's some, uh, there's a neat little museum dedicated to him.
0: And there's a little uh, shout out to Billy Graham's traveling pulpit. I did not know he traveled with his own pulpit.
2: (laughs) Yeah, he didn't used to. There was a time when he did not, but the head of IBM. At the time, the founder of IBM Mm -hmm. saw him speaking off a pulpit that was just not suited for him. And so custom crafted him one, uh, which had some very old school um, computer, uh, I guess, computer or automation in it. So it could raise and lower and there are certain lights and other things in it that would uh, blink on when he had five minutes left, when he had two minutes left, when his time was up and uh, all that. So, yeah, it's neat. And that's an object. If you go to Wheaton College uh, in Wheaton, Illinois, you can actually stand in the pulpit. It's right there in the museum and wide open.
0: Yeah, Tim, you have one crazy travel story, maybe even unrelated to the contents in the book.
2: <laughs> a crazy travel story. Yeah I, I mean, really, yeah, I did so well in travel. I can't even tell you. We we flew maybe 180,000 miles for this project, and we never had a missed—we had one missed connection, but it didn't um, matter. We could just drive it. We had nothing go wrong, didn't miss a flight. It was— it was incredible. So I really, I expected I'd have some crazy travel stories at the end of it all. But, uh, in the end it was just a joy. Uh, it was tiring, I tell you, but it was a joy. And
0: the most eccentric person you met in all these travels?
2: (laughs) The most eccentric, Yeah. more eccentric than me. Um, yeah, I met some wonderful people, including some eccentric people, but I would, uh, I would not want to label them as such on, uh, on a public <laughs> yeah. radio. All right. Uh, they know who they are and they okay. know how much I admire them. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, that's uh, amazing. I just find this book to be a, a really, really fun, interesting read. And it's available now. Tim Challies has written a book called Epic and Around the World Journey Through Christian History. Tim, thanks for coming on the show. And I really do want to call you back now that you're maybe traveling less and, and just chat with you about some of your other blogging and writing and everything else.
2: Yeah, that would be great. And don't forget, there's a 10-part documentary series, a travel documentary video that goes with this as well, and they complement one another nicely.
0: Fantastic. Tim, have a great rest of the day, and God bless. Thank you. You bet. Tim Challies, again, has been my my guest. Epic is the name of his book, and again, an around-the-world journey through Christian history. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back.